build deep, deep, deep relationships with the folks, especially at the country level, because honestly, I found that folks at the country level have been some of the biggest champions of these initiatives. I think finding in many cases the right set of folks who really understand the need, they are there, they're very motivated. They are far better at doing what they do than I ever could be. And so I think just making sure you engage them and not thinking of folks at the country level as blockers, but as enablers. Welcome to the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Berhovich. I thoroughly enjoy bringing you discussions with incredible industry leaders in every episode, and it would mean a lot to me if you could rate the podcast in your favorite player and hit that bell to be notified of future episodes. In the previous episode, I spoke with Jens Nortenshäuser, co-founder and co-CEO of Kranos Health. In their own words, Kranos Health's mission is to revolutionize men's health by providing innovative and accessible healthcare solutions. Today, I spoke with Emeo Fatke, patient's non-pharma solutions leader at KSE Pharma. In their own words, KSE is an international research-focused biopharmaceutical group that develops and markets innovative therapeutic solutions in respiratory health, rare diseases, and specialty care. But before we dive in, Ame and I were trying to remember where and how we met and we settled on a startup health event, which was held years ago surrounding the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. Irrespective of when and where we met, I really feel that I've known Amea for a decade plus. Amea has been at the forefront of non-molecular innovation with first-of-its-kind deals such as the one KSE struck with Kaya Health, one of our previous guests on season one. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Amea. Amea, welcome to the DTX podcast. Been looking forward to this one. I'm a former entrepreneur in Big Pharma. So for our audience, please give us a little bit about your background and also don't forget about one small or large interesting fact about yourself. Perfect. So I will start with the interesting fact because I feel like that always sets the stage. So I'm a beatboxer and I've been doing that for years. And I actually beatboxed at my first keynote presentation at Chiesi at our large marketing conference. So that may actually be an industry first of a DTX guy doing a beatboxing as part of his presentation. Absolutely. Can you do the rest of your introduction in the beatbox mode? Funny. So someone wants to try to ask me to do that. And the problem is I think the mic filters it out because it thinks it's noise. So I'm a, let's see, scientist trained digital therapeutics into well, scientist trained strategist turned deal maker turned digital therapeutics entrepreneur. So started my career out, I think, uh, in a pretty typical fashion, trained as a PhD in biomedical engineering, started out in medical device R&D. What I found really interesting was the commercial side of life sciences and how do you kind of go from concept to actually getting something into the market. Then decided to try my hand at going to a startup, working in commercial strategy there, loved it. And then right around then, Chiesi reached out and they really wanted someone to lead their digital therapeutics and digital health deals. And that kind of grew a little bit into really helping them build out a non-pharmacological business, which just as a customary disclaimer, Really looking forward to the conversation. Anything that I say here is my own opinion and may not necessarily be that of Chiesi's. Man, I love those pharma (laughs) comments, but I also know that you got to do them. 
got to do it. And again, like I said, obviously, as I tell everybody, including my family, qualify anything with this. I'm not an advisor or anything. And if you're taking me as an advisor, really scraping the bottom of the barrel. Unless you take you as an advisor and beatbox. But to be frank, I've actually never heard until I got into the pharma industry about Chiesi. And I would even venture to say that I haven't heard much about it until just Frontiers Health, one of the events that some of your team was there and I got to know Chiesi a little bit more and then you and I met. Maybe for our audience, tell us, Chiesi, who are you guys? We are a global company headquartered in Northern Italy, but presence across the world. I think our last count is well over 6,000 employees, well over 2 billion in sales. And we're really focused on three primary areas. So the first one is air, which is respiratory diseases, asthma, COPD, other diseases in the respiratory area. Then there's special care, neonatology, critical care. And then more recently, we've been really aggressively growing on the rare disease side. But company with stored history, we've been around for well over 80 years. And yeah, I think it's been a really fascinating journey just seeing how the company's thinking has evolved on the digital health side. And that was like a perfect landing spot for my next question. You mentioned in your own intro, Kezi started to think about digital health. They brought you in. So rewind us back, onboarding process, but also the interview process. I'm sure you've asked the questions, you know, how was this born in Kezi? And maybe take us through a little bit of the history of a pharma company thinking digital health and then zoom into the DTX specifically. And then I got a bazillion questions there. I think there is a bit of a philosophical shift, right? Where as a pharma company, when you think of what you're really providing the health system, it is outcomes. Historically, medications have and you know, will be an important way to achieve those outcomes. Several years ago, we really started to ask ourselves, are there things beyond just medication that we could be doing that still leverage some of the things that we know, like our deep knowledge of respiratory care in a way to kind of impact the lives of patients? I think a lot of the industry efforts had focused on digital offerings that had something to do with medication, and there's been some great progress made there. But we really saw a lot of other unmet needs that were very connected to the disease, but weren't necessarily medication adjacent. And we saw that for us, really a really cool opportunity to help people live better, which at the end is really what we're about, both as a pharma company and as a B Corp. Again, the beauty of being a family-run company, and so that also affords us the opportunity to think a little bit more long-term. A lot of that really led to genesis of the partnership we have with the team at Kaya, which is something that personally I'm really proud of. Let's actually dive right in because we had Jonas on season one. The team obviously has grown. There's quite a lot of studies published around the efficacy of the product. That's kind of at the core of their product. I know your partnership with Kaya was around COPD, but even from that ideation perspective to getting this deal through within the pharmaco management, maybe walk some other entrepreneurs and innovators through. And I would probably venture to say that every DNA of every company is different. But having said that, I'm sure some of the struggles and some of the challenges that you and the Kaya team ran in through others can learn from. So I'll mute my mic and uh, I would love to listen to this. Just rewinding to years ago, and I mean, this is before COVID, so it really was a different world. This is where we had started to dive deep into some of the things, some of the patients that we worked with were, were dealing with. And 
we were really enamored by this concept of the impact that behavioral interventions can have on the lives of patients, which given that this is a DTX podcast, it'll hopefully not be a mystery to any of the listeners. But for us, what was interesting was we had kind of just chanced upon this access gap to pulmonary rehabilitation, which for those of you that don't know, is something that is really underutilized when you think of the level of impact it could have. And so when we were thinking about this, this was like back in 2018, 2019, this is right when companies like Pear and Achilliot started to make some announcements around codifying these behavioral interventions into software. And we were just like, why has someone not done this in COPD yet? Like, are we missing something here? And sometimes they say it's better to be lucky than good, literally by dumb luck. My journal or my industry newsfeed picked up this article about a study that Kai had published back then. And I candidly had no idea that Kai was working on anything related to COPD. And so I literally just put together a cold email to Constantine, their CEO, which I still have that email saved today, by the way, where I was like, hey, you know, we're working on the respiratory side. I think what you guys are doing is super interesting. We'll just love to connect. And met with Constantine in San Francisco, JP Morgan Week, obviously. And then he connected me to Jonas. And that was really the start of just a really, really great relationship in that we didn't come to the table with preconceived notions and neither did they. I think we saw a lot of interesting potential there, as did they. And then a lot of it was honestly iteratively building something together in a way that a, allowed us to get this into the hands of patients, but also honestly leverage, hopefully, the strengths that each party brought to the table. And like the term one plus one equals three, I think, is a cliched terminology, but it's one that we really wanted to strive for. I would say it was well over a year of just riffing off of each other and trying to figure out something that actually makes sense for both companies and one that honestly keeps both companies thinking about what's ultimately at the same interest. So that's really how it kicked off. And it's always crazy to think back to how the smallest coincidences can sometimes lead to these things. And navigating this through, because to be honest, I don't know where you guys are actually launched this country-wise. You and I always chatted about in, engaging, not at the global level, but at the country level. So maybe you can talk a little bit deeper into that partnership with Kaya and where are you deploying, what a little bit of the journey was from global to local and local to global, however you describe it. I believe in the philosophy that ultimately at the end of the day, the core franchise and the countries are really my customers. And so I have to do whatever I can to hopefully put them in the best position to succeed. But this is kind of where engagement with the folks at the country level early on was really crucial. Because honestly, for some guys sitting in the U.S. to know the ins and outs of how to navigate the situation in a given country, it's just not realistic. I use an example of Germany. Again, really giving all the credit in the world to the colleagues at Chiesi Germany because we really co-led this together. It was really a co-leadership of this. It's gotten to a point where they're really doing a lot of the heavy lifting and I'm really just fading into the background, which was really what was intended the whole time. We recently launched in Germany, which is a massive point of pride for us, but it was working with the country. It was working with the primary care franchise, so the core business, understanding, A, was this interesting, B, was the local environment favorable? And this was before DIGA, by the way. It was understanding that, it was understanding local appetite, it was saying, all right, philosophically, is this something that we want to do? And again, to their credit, they're a very forward-thinking group of folks. 
And again, having that support all the way to the head of the country, to the general manager, that was also a great thing for the executive folks on our end to see, because I think a lot of times these partnerships, things can fall through the cracks if it's kind of a global sponsored initiative that doesn't really resonate with the countries. And so having that level of buy-in from the beginning was great. But on the flip side, I think it also showed a lot of credibility to the team at Kaya when we had the KEZ Germany folks intimately involved even before there was a deal where they saw this desire to actually make things real, that this wasn't just an exercise in innovation or something like that, that this was one where we really saw this as a product that could help respiratory patients that just happened to be digital as opposed to saying, well, we have to do a digital therapeutic deal. It was, I think, a different approach than what I had seen previously in the industry. And I think both in terms of demonstrating credibility, but also thinking through the level of minutia in terms of when the rubber hits the road, what are the different level of details you need to think about? There's always going to be learnings. But I think just going down that level of detail also, honestly, I think helped us understand the space a lot better than we did. And I keep saying this again and again, but I think just watching the relationship blossom between not just myself and Kai, and not just a couple of people at Casey Germany, but really the entire affiliate and the Kaya team has just been personally so gratifying to watch. I can't tell you how lucky I am to have the people that we do at that affiliate and just to count on them as co-leaders of this. One more question around this. Typically, when we speak pharma, many of the initiatives are drug plus, not necessarily standalone. So how did you structure this? And again, without obviously the financial terms and all of that, but just curious on how you structure that internally, even working with a German team that seemed to be gung-ho around it, but obviously selling this upstream to headquarters. Curious a little bit on that. I think the beauty of this was honestly, I never felt like I had to sell this to anyone. I felt like the whole time I was selling this with people. So this is, I think, where understanding how big of a problem it solved for patients was helpful. And then I think a lot of it was asking ourselves, I don't believe that there's a right or wrong business model. I think there's a right or wrong business model for a given use case. And so thinking about was doing this as a drug plus deal, was that really the best approach? Just thinking through ultimately from a credibility perspective, from a utility perspective, what made sense. I can't go into too many other details about how it was structured, but a lot of it was ultimately... I think what we also wanted to do, and I think what Kai also wanted to ensure was that whatever model we chose was one that was mutually beneficial to both companies and to patients and just helped us get this into the hands of as many patients as we possibly could, but with real credibility behind it. So we kind of looked at a number of different models, ones that have been incumbent in the industry. And again, for us, we really wanted to think about this in terms of what is the right model for this? And if it's not drug plus, what is it? And so we could have a long discussion about that. <laughs> we'll save it for the shot of digital health therapy over a shot or something like that. There you go. It was great. If we brought this to the market, how would the market perceive it? Would the market take it seriously? Would it look at it just like another twin a kid's meal type of thing, which I know I got to give credit to Eddie from Achille because he's used that analogy and I've shamelessly borrowed that everywhere. It's a fantastic analogy. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my amazing partner on this podcast, Chandana Fitzgerald, who is the CEO of Health Excel and as her friends call her, Dr. No Crack. Let's see what question Chandana has for our guest today. Hi, Amaya. Can you dive a little deeper into the deal with Aptar that you announced late last year? 
Yeah. So what we wanted to do was also think about not just standalone solutions, which I think are a great stepping stone, but we also want to think about what are all the other aspects where technology can really help patients, HCPs, all stakeholders really better manage respiratory diseases. And so, again, we saw a really cool opportunity to partner with Aptar, who have been really growing out their their digital health organization. And again, to really address all of these, but in a single form factor, right? And so, again, the idea of us was to take all these practices of disease management and ideally just make it easier for the patients to access. The term I like to always use, and this is very similar to our philosophy for DTX, which is you look at an incumbent model, which is forcing patients to go somewhere to get some service. Can you bring those services to the patients at their fingertips? And that's whether it's ETX, whether it's disease management, that same philosophy is pervasive. And I'm going to hop in here real quick, because as I alluded to in many of these in season one, and I think I actually asked Jonas that question as well, I was always asking DTX as a standalone versus disease management 2.0. Given what's happening in the marketplace, and actually your comment earlier to answer Chandan's question is that there's, and I'm going to paraphrase what you said, let's bring the tools to the patient and let's help the patient more holistically. So give me your thoughts on standalone DTX, which I know you're a fan of as well, but also versus disease management 2.0. I think they both have an important place right in the patient journey. So I think a lot of it is what underlying problems are you trying to solve? What are the interventions that you are relying on? And does that intervention, if codified into software, lend itself better to traditional DTX or a disease management platform? It's not an either or. I think they're both very, very important. I think they both go after different aspects that are both really, really important in care. Yeah, and I guess based on the patient journey as well, my head was always that we need to look at patient journey much more holistically and, again, bring the right tools on therapies. That could be software or molecular therapies at the right time. Ultimately, the goal is you think about what is the delta between the quality of life that a person with a disease has versus someone without the disease, and how can you reduce that delta? Ideally, eliminate it, but how can you give the person their quality of life back what can you do? And whether that is through DTX, whether that's a disease management platform, whether that's through medication, right? I mean, it's a combination of all of them. It's all about what problems are you addressing and what the right ways to address those. They're all quite complementary, to be honest. I want to actually step back, I guess, a couple of steps here. I think some of the challenges, and especially in pharma, Pharmaceutical companies are great in producing small or large molecules. There's a process. It takes time. And then on the other side is, quote unquote, let's call it the easier way to partner up with DTX companies when those are standalone. It's the challenge of the drug plus. So a molecule plus a digital therapeutic is always a big challenge. At what point do you bring that in from a clinical trial perspective? How do you actually attribute sales and commercial traction once it's out in the marketplace? I'm curious how you guys are thinking about this or based on your earlier CYA, how are you thinking about this? (laughs) Yeah, it's a good question, right? I mean, I always ask myself when we're thinking about this, for a given DTX, how does it work, right? So to what extent does a DTX require pharmacology to produce its desired effect? 
So in some cases, that may be a DTX that potentially impacts how the patient can take their medication. In some cases, it may not be. And so I think a lot of it is just think about it from what the mechanism of action, to use a pharma term, how does your DTX produce the outcomes that you hope it will? And philosophically, does that make sense? You don't want to force something if it doesn't make sense. Because honestly, I think stakeholders can see through all that. And I think even when it comes to deriving value, that is really where you'll get to the value capture, where if in fact your DTX is something that makes sense to combine with the drug, you'll at least have a hypothesis that you can test whether it's sales of the drug, whether it's outcomes, whether it's some combination to whatever it is. I think that's just the idea is just philosophically thinking about what the use case of the DTX is, to what extent that makes sense to combine with the drug versus not. And then just take it from there. And in some cases, a DTX may not be viable for a pharma company, and that's okay. It's important not just to think about the deals to do, but also which things don't make sense. And I think that level of focus is one that I know I've always tried to embody in our DTX work, was focusing on a small number of potentially transformative initiatives, as opposed to kind of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. The spray and pray methodology. That's what I call it. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Amea Fatke, patient's non-pharma solutions leader at GSC Pharma. We alluded to standalone DTXs and obviously would love, love, love to get your thoughts on what I think part of the industry started calling like the Armageddon of the DTX, the pairs chapter 11, which I, I don't share the same view, but I'm really curious on your personal thoughts on this. It was unfortunate. I think Pear was a company that really been the trailblazer. I mean, from the earliest days, I think before DTX was an actual term. So for me, I'm not going to try to pass judgment because I wasn't in the room. When I look at the industry narrative. There's a lot of points that I don't think have been taken into account. I honestly don't think the industry has given Pear nearly enough credit for not just the vision, but also the fact on what they're able to execute. They were getting prescriptions. They were able to navigate what is not an easy market access situation in the U.S., they were able to do things like get the reimbursement code. They were able to get patients to actually fill these prescriptions, again, without kind of a harmonized process like there is in Germany. And so I haven't really seen those points talked about a lot. I can't necessarily talk about why Pear ran into the situation that they did. But honestly, I really wish that people would give the team a bit more credit for the stuff that they were able to achieve. And honestly, again, the fact that they're able to do this in what is not an easy patient population is all the more challenging. So I don't know Corey personally, but I really hope that him and his team don't lose sight of the fact, even if a large portion of the industry has either forgotten or chosen to ignore it. These proof points to me tell me that it's just a shame that things happened the way they did, because I think they were proving out the market. Before we get to, again, back to personal questions, would love to hear what's next for Kiesi Digital Health to the extent that you can talk about it. So we're a company that hopefully likes to make our actions speak more than words. So I think for us, obviously, the work with Kaya, we kind of bring to the table, we execute on that, obviously continue to charge forward with our partners at Aptar. And so I think a lot of it is just heads down and making sure we execute on stuff before we take more stuff on. But there are a few things in the pipeline, because again, it is an area where there are a lot of unmet needs. And again, thinking even just beyond what we've been doing on the respiratory side. So nothing that we can share at this point yet, but hopefully we'll have some stuff to share in the near term. You know, we're not resting. 
even with the doom and gloom that may be surrounding the DTX space right now? I mean, the underlying problems that DTX solve haven't changed. Patients are still facing the same challenges. That's what has us going, right? Which is market trends can be fickle, but ultimately there are patients at the end of what we're doing. And so keeping the ultimate goal on just helping people live better, that's kind of what keeps us going. Nothing concrete to share at this point, but hopefully we'll have some more to share soon. Understood. And I appreciate as much transparency as you can give on a public forum like this. I always ask the question about what advice you would give. And since we didn't have many intrapreneurs, sometimes it seems very lonely in large organizations navigating it and having an entrepreneurial spirit. So we'd love for you to give advice to the digital health intrapreneurs or innovators inside larger organizations. Yeah, I mean, Build deep, deep, deep relationships with the folks, especially at the country level, because honestly, I found that folks at the country level have been some of the biggest champions of these initiatives. I think finding, in many cases, the right set of folks who really understand the need, they are there, they're very motivated, they are far better at doing what they do than I ever could be. And so I think just making sure you engage them and not thinking of folks at the country level as blockers, but as enablers, because honestly, I have nothing but good things to say. And there's several countries even beyond Germany, which again, they've been some of my most valuable collaborators. I think the other function that I think sometimes people don't tend to engage early on enough, or even the folks on the compliance and the legal side, maybe I just got lucky. But again, my colleagues in legal and compliance have been fantastic in terms of spitballing things, spitballing ideas. And they've really been enablers more than anything. So don't be daunted by, I would say, a lot of the stereotypes out there. I think you'll find that the folks at the country level and compliance and legal can be some of your biggest champions. What's the saying? If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So I think that's the balance that entrepreneurs need to find. And at the end of the day, I think you want to shift from selling to people internally to selling with people internally. And that, to me, I would say is, if I could put it all in one sentence, like change your mindset from selling to to selling with. We started with you, Amea. Let's end with you. What gets you up in the morning? Honestly, I think the fact that we're being at a place that is really willing to challenge the status quo, I think, again... Some people may look at this market environment and be hesitant, but to me, it's really a time of opportunity. Patient needs haven't changed. This is a time where if you're focused, you can really make a big impact. So honestly, it's just a job that I somehow learn something new every day. It's intellectually keeps me on my toes all the time. Love it. Amaya, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're automatically notified each time I speak with one of these amazing leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Health Excel, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.